We'll hear argument next, number 1999, direction 1331, James Lewis versus Lewis and Clark Marine. Mr. Drips. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, both the Jones Act and the Limited Liability Act can and should be given effect in this single claimant case. Yet Respondent seeks to use the Limited Liability Act to destroy rights conferred by Congress on Lewis as a seaman. The Jones Act incorporates the provisions of the Federal Employers Liability Act, guaranteeing the employee a choice of a state or federal forum. In addition, that guarantees him the freedom from removal to federal court in the event he chooses a state court forum. That's true of both the Jones Act and FELA. Yes, sir. And that statutory remedy is saved to Lewis by the saving to suitors clause. Yet it can only be preserved in this case by dissolving the injunction against state court proceedings. This court's decision in the 1931 Langness case held that the injunction, even without stipulations, should be dissolved to allow the state court suit to proceed, and that the Admiralty Court would resume jurisdiction only in the event that the state court judgment exceeded the amount of the limitation fund. Well, under what circumstances could the district court uh, exercise its discretion and not dissolve the injunction and require litigation of liability in federal court? Justice O'Connor, it would be only in a multiple claimant um, excess fund situation. And even then, under the Jones Act, there might be a question uh, with regard to preserving multiple suitors' claims under the Jones Act. But generally, in a non-Jones Act, multiple claimant, excess fund situation, the vessel owner does have the right to maintain the exclusive jurisdiction of the Admiralty Court. Well, what, what if you have uh, excess funds, multiple, and, and the Jones Act? Are you saying that the, the, the Jones Act would pre, pre, prevent a liability determination in all of those situations? Not necessarily. I'm saying that it's a question that uh, potentially could be raised, but it hasn't been. That's, of course, not this case. Uh, this is a single claimant case, and part of the court's discretion at the district court level certainly was finding that it, it could be a uh, single claimant case, which the district court order did note in footnote three. Um, Do you think that the the courts and Rule F preclude um, a single claimant exception? Oh, absolutely not, uh, Justice O'Connor. I think that was made clear in the Langness case because in the Langness case, the district court in fact exonerated the vessel owner, mm -hmm. and were that uh, were Rule F. Uh, to preclude dissolution of the injunction, certainly the court would have simply relied on the exoneration finding. But you think that Rule F is invalid? 
I do. Uh, however, I, and I want to make this clear, the court need not reach that issue if it simply follows the, the Langness analysis. The Rules Enabling Act analysis only comes into play in this case if uh, the respondent's position is adopted and that they say that we have no right to go to state court. At that point, I'm forced to attack the rule, which gives them the right to uh, have a liability and damage uh, determination made in the federal court, which I do say is invalid as violation of the rulemaking powers of this court. But it's possible to rule for you here without holding that Rule F is invalid, just as a matter of interpretation, isn't it? Mr. Chief Justice, I agree completely that uh, if the court simply follows the Langness case and says that the Jones Act allows this case to be brought in state court and that that statutory remedy is preserved by the Saving to Suitors Clause and that the injunction should be dissolved on that basis, the court need not reach the issue of the invalidity of Rule F. But it, might not, but it might not uh, go that far if you had a, a mass disaster and there were many sailors injured and the vessel wasn't worth enough to cover all the claims. Justice Ginsburg, I, I think that in that case, the plain language of the limitation statute in anything other than fire requires the vessel owner to admit liability and cannot use the limitation statute as a method to shift the form and then contest liability. The ship owner has a choice of one or the other in that circumstance. How does it work in, in, in practice? You have a single claimant, uh, and there's adequate, adequate funds to cover the claim, and it goes to the state court. Then six weeks later, somebody else has a slip and fall. And then there's another suit. Uh, does, does that make everything start all over again? Uh, how does this work? In, it, it seems to me um, uh, that there's great merit to your position, but that on the other hand, uh, there's going to be problems down the line when you have subsequent claims, or is that maybe not a problem? Justice Kennedy, I don't believe that's a problem because normally um, when you have a case like this, the you have separate or serial funds. Each time the vessel owner wishes to file a limitation case, uh, there's a separate valuation made, and it's a separate proceeding. Now, the seaman's claims will become liens in priority of the time they arise, but that's a separate issue. And I, okay, so the priority is, is, is what solves the problem. Exactly. There's a priority based on chronology. And also, chronology of when the claim was filed or when the injury occurred. I believe that it is as of the time of the judgment, uh, except for wages. When it's a uh, wages are a lien that accrue as of the time. Well, then I think there might be a problem with successive claims. We, we need not get into it. It's in the background. It seems to me um, of the rule we must make because if we ship it all off to the state court, uh, and then there are going to be subsequent claims, you might have to start to um, stop the state proceeding mid, midway. Well, Justice Kennedy, I believe that would only be a problem if the vessel owner uh, tenders the vessel to a trustee rather than posting security for value, which is what was done in this case. Um, if, in fact, the vessel is turned over to a trustee, though, uh, the likelihood is that it's not going to be employed by the owner, um, and so that owner won't be allowed to have a subsequent claim. Um, and if they post security for value, I think that solves the problem because there is a fund posted uh, and we won't be in a situation where we have competing claims for the same fund. In other words, they will be different funds 
Do I understand that limitation correctly? I mean, the typical use would be if you have a collision and lots of people are hurt. Uh, but this is a, a single, this is a tripping on wire. So we know it isn't, it isn't disputed in this case, is it, that we're dealing with a single sailor accident? There was, he tripped over a wire on the deck. There, there is no dispute concerning that, Justice Ginsburg. Um, in the motion to dissolve the restraining order, which is in the joint appendix, uh, page 70, and I believe it's at page 71, paragraph 6, uh, Lewis made the specific claim that this was a single claimant accident. That claim has never been rebutted or contradicted by the opposing side, by the vessel owner. So this is clearly a single claimant case. Now, what your question suggests, then, is why was this case filed? And it was filed simply as a forum-shifting device. But you sued later. Oh, you think that they came in precipitously so that the forum would be where they wanted it rather than where you chose to sue? Well, Justice Ginsburg, I wouldn't use the term precipitously, um, but the complaint was filed on March 24, 1998. Normally, in the case of a mass disaster, for example, there will be immediately a motion for an injunction and a notice to potential claimants that goes out. That was not done in this case until May 11th, uh, six weeks or so after the initial complaint. And it was not done until after uh, the uh, state court case had been filed. What they did was they filed the limitation case in the federal court and then sat on it, waited to see if Lewis was going to institute suit or not. When he did, they, they obtained the injunction restraining prosecution of the suit. And, and their limitation <laughs> proceeding was filed in which court? It was filed in the Eastern District of Missouri, United States District Court for the Eastern District of Missouri, across the river from Madison County, Illinois. And rather than filing it in the Southern District of Illinois. There was um, seemed seem to be a concession that if only you had asked for a jury trial, you'd be home free because you can't get a ju jury trial in Admiralty, and that's what the Savings to Suitors Clause saved. And I think the, the Linton case from the Fifth Circuit in 1992 addresses that point specifically, Justice Ginsburg, and they say that the saving clause saves a non-jury Jones Act case because that's part of the, the seaman's remedy under the Jones Act. The Jones Act's election language says the seaman has the right to maintain an action at law uh, or um, with or without a jury. Um, and by incorporating the Federal Employer's Liability Act, he can do it in state or federal court. Well, the, the defendant cannot ask for a jury trial in that situation? That's true, Chief Justice. Uh, the, um, and I think the, uh, the Linton case goes on at great length to discuss that. And the significance of that, um, I think, is perhaps made more clear by the anti-removal provision in 28 U.S.C. 1445A. The defendant cannot remove that case to federal court where he would be able to trigger the Seventh Amendment and yes, get a jury but, trial. But it's one thing to say it, for Congress to say it can't be removed. But it seems to me it's quite another, a separate thing for Congress to say that the plaintiff can have a non-jury trial and the defendant cannot move for a jury. Um, that is what the Linton case said. And um, 
that point wasn't specifically brought up in the briefs, although I believe this Court has addressed that issue. I'd have to go outside the briefs and yeah, to well, give you the case it, it, it certainly isn't directly involved here, is it? No, sir. No, sir. But this Court has addressed it. Um, we said in Singer, that Singer case, in the criminal case, that the government can move for a jury trial even though the defendant doesn't want one. And in, in this case, um, Congress has specifically said that the, the injured employee has the option of determining whether or not uh, it should be a jury or non-jury trial. And that's what this court said in the Panama Railroad case versus Johnson uh, from 1920. The Linton case simply followed that and said that uh, the fact that the seaman chooses the uh, non-jury remedy in state court does not transform the case into something uh, that is now removable because it's outside the scope of the saving to suitors clause. And that ties in with this court's decision in the Red Cross Lines case um, where it concluded that statutory remedies are saved remedies. And in this case, Mr. Lewis is a seaman invoking his rights under the Jones Act, which is a federal statute. Accordingly, that remedy is saved to him by the saving to suitors clause. And Congress's decision to confer the right to select the form and the form of trial on the seaman is also saved by the saving to suitors clause. In contrast, the vessel owner's rights in this case have been fully protected by Lewis's stipulations. We've guaranteed their right to seek the exclusive jurisdiction of the federal admiralty court. And in that case, their federal statutory rights are fully protected. But they're, by precluding us from being able to proceed in state court, they are destroying the rights that Congress has conferred upon us in the Jones Act and preserved from the exclusive federal jurisdiction through the savings clause. What have you conceded with respect to the limitation form? Because there'll be nothing. There'll be nothing. The only. This is the only lawsuit. This Jones. This is the only claim. So they have a shell of an action, but there's nothing. To fill the shell, because if this case will go on in the state court, there'll be a decision. There's more than enough money in the till to pay the judgment. So what, what have you conceded by letting them keep the limitation? Justice Ginsburg, what we've done is guaranteed that their limitation action will be successful. They have limited their liability. They have capped their liability. And that your, that's your concession, that your claim is for less than the... the Absolutely. Although, and, and I don't think that's necessary, though, to a resolution of the case. If we look back at the Langness case, which was a Jones Act case, uh, the court's decision simply hinged on applying the saving to suitors clause so that both statutory doctrines could be implemented, which is what I'm asking this court to do now, rather than to pick one in an effort to uh, destroy the other. And that is the goal, I think, of this case. But you're, you're, what's left of the, what's in the shell, I guess, is a kind of interorum jurisdiction uh, to, in effect, to, to guarantee the concessions. And you, it may never have to be, presumably, it will never have to be exercised, but you're conceding that it could be. Justice Souter, that's right. The, in the event that a state court judgment would be entered in excess of the limitation fund, I think they have an absolute right to go back into the federal court and say, wait a minute, Lewis agreed that in order to get to state court, his, our liability would be capped. And at that point, the federal judge would have the right to enter an order limiting their liability. 
I don't think there's any dispute about that. All right. At, to, to, to keep it simple on race judicata, they could simply enjoin collection beyond the, the conceded uh, limitation. Sure. Yeah. Um, but they don't have the right to go beyond capping their liability, which is what they're seeking to do. They're seeking to shift the forum from the state court, which has been guaranteed to us by Congress, into the federal court so that the liability and damage determination can be made there. And that's what we say is improper. Do I correctly understand the picture on this exoneration that would go on if you had said you did have a a a collision, would go on in the uh, admiralty forum, that the function is served by the defense that the shipowner can put into the Jones Act claim, that is, there was no negligence here. And that is effectively what the exoneration plea would do. In some ways, Justice Ginsburg. Now, if I understand the question correctly, um, I don't believe that the exoneration rule is an incorporation of Congress's allowing them a defense under the Jones Act. I think that defense has to be taken in the context of the statute, and they can choose to defend and require us to put on our proof of negligence, but only in the context of the forum grant that is given to the employee by Congress. But, but from, the, in, from the ship owner's point of view, there's one thing to say the ship owner itself had no involvement in the negligence. It was the other deckhands. It, it's a respondeat superior situation. Uh, that's one thing. Another thing is there was no negligence by anybody at all, and I thought that that was the equivalent of the exoneration plea, that, that nobody was negligent at all, as distinguished from maybe we have responding as superior liability, but we should be allowed to limit that. That's true. That is the essence of the exoneration claim, and that's what they want the federal court to decide. The two responses to that are, first of all, the Langness case from this court essentially uh, held that the uh, exoneration claim was not sufficient to preclude dissolution of the injunction because, as I noted earlier, in Langness, the district court had, in fact, exonerated the vessel owner. Uh, This court nonetheless required the the injunction to be dissolved and the case to go back to state court. That I don't follow, because if there was a determination of exoneration, that is, no uh, liability at all, not limited, but no liability at all, why wouldn't that have been preclusive in state court? If it had not been uh, reversed by this court, it would have been preclusive. But but this court said that determination has to be made in state court and not in federal court. What determination? The determination of liability and damage. And once it's made in state court, it is preclusive of the exoneration claim in federal court under the rule of the benefactor, which this court decided in 1880. But if the federal court had made it, made the determination first and, that, and hadn't been reversed, then that would be preclusive. Yes, it would. But the, the court reversed it because the determination should have been made by the state court in the first instance rather than the federal court. And that's the essence of the Langness holding, that we're implementing the Jones Act's grant to the seaman preserved through the Saving to Suitors Clause, 
of the right to proceed in state court rather than be forced into federal court by the ship owner. And that holding was made without the presence of any stipulations regarding race judicata. This court said that the case will go back to state court for that determination. The other response... That sounds like uh, entirely in sync with my suggestion that the defense of no negligence at all, which can be put into the Jones Act proceeding, is the equivalent of getting in the federal court exoneration. That's absolutely true, Justice Ginsburg. They have the right in state court to defend, require the plaintiff to prove negligence, causation, and damage. They will be getting in the state court the benefit of that defense that they seek to assert in federal court. They are not being deprived of any rights by proceeding in state court. And their federal right of limitation will be guaranteed to them by the stipulations that we filed, waiving race judicata with regard to the issue of limited liability and stipulating to the exclusive jurisdiction of the district court to decide the limitation issues. Those protect their federal rights and their right to defend and require proof of negligence and the other elements of the plaintiff's case are all things they can assert in the state court. The other reason uh, that the exoneration rule should not be permitted uh, to uh, control disposition of this case and require it to be brought into federal court is because at that point we do get into the rules enabling analysis um, and I simply want to mention uh, the Henderson case that this court decided in 1996 which um, set forth uh, four factors that the court considers in determining whether or not a provision is substantive or procedural. Rule F meets each and every one of those um, The Henderson court indicated that the factors are who may sue, which is answered by Rule F1, which says any vessel owner, on what claims, the amount of all demands in contract, tort or otherwise, Rule F2, for what relief, exoneration or limitation from liability under Rule F2, and within what limitations period, not later than six months after receipt of a written notice of claim. Well, you say it meets every test. It meets every test for, for being procedural. Is that what you're For saying? being substantive. For being substantive. Yes, Your Honor. And that's why I say that if, if the court adopts the analysis that the respondent has offered, then we need to grapple with the Rules Enabling Act analysis. And in that case... Uh, the provision of conferring a substantive right to sue by rule violates the Rules Enabling Act because it conflicts with the congressional statutory scheme of the Jones Act by abridging or modifying Lewis's right to sue in state court and enlarges the vessel owner's right uh, to seek limited liability in federal court. Following your argument to this extent, I thought all this came up originally not because because of statutes, but, but because of what made doctrine in admiralty. And then that doctrine gets reflected eventually into Rule F. It's not like a rule in place of a statute, where I would follow your argument very well, but it is taking what was indeed substantive law, but substantive law originally made up by courts. 
Well, normally, Justice Ginsburg, I would agree with you that that is what the rules do. In this particular case, however, this court's decision in the benefactor specifically said that the 56th rule in Admiralty, which was the predecessor of the current Rule F, was designed to circumvent the prevailing English rule requiring the vessel owner to admit liability. So, in fact, the rule has done the opposite of what you suggest. It has created a substantive uh, right to sue for a determination of liability and damage, where, in fact, the common law or the prevailing admiralty law required the opposite, that the vessel owner admit liability. And that was the decision uh, specifically of of this court. (coughs) If there are no further questions, Mr. Chief Justice, I'd like to reserve the balance of my time. (laughs) Very well, Mr. Dripps. Mr. O'Brien, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may please the court. The issue that is presented on certiorari grant from this court in this case is whether the district court in this case abused its discretion in lifting the injunction that was imposed upon the filing of the limitation of liability case and allowing the claimant to proceed with a non-jury case in Illinois State Court, where he was a single claimant in the limitation and where the fund was, at least after the initial filing, uh, deemed adequate. The Eighth Circuit answered this question in the affirmative and held that since the remedy sought by the claimant, a non-jury trial, was already available in the limitation of liability court, uh, that there was no saved remedy. In other words, there was no statutory right of the claimant implicated and therefore the federal district court in the limitation case was bound uh, by its grant of jurisdiction under Article 3, Section 2. Well, do you think the district court's view would have been different had the uh, right to jury trial not been given up? Uh, Mr. Chief Justice, our position in the case, and I believe the position of the Eighth Circuit was, that if a jury trial had been requested, then a a remedy that was not available in the district court would have been sought, and therefore a saved remedy would have been sought, and therefore uh, the stay, assuming the uh, single claimant exception and the adequate fund exceptions were met, would have been allowed to proceed in Illinois State Court. So this, this, this case hinges, in your view at any rate, on the fact that the plaintiff had waived the right to a jury trial. To a large extent, it does. Um, and you say, that, you say that because you say, well, then he doesn't need the state forum because he can get a non-jury trial in admiralty. But wouldn't one say equally, once the um, Jones Act plaintiff stipulates that he's not going to seek more than X amount of da- damages, you don't need the limitation proceeding? Our position takes a step back. And our position looks back at the original origin of the single claimant exception that was set forth by this court in Langness versus Green. And what we say is, is that uh, we know a number of things about what this court, what the district courts have to do under the Limitation of Liability Act. Unlike uh, uh, some of the cases cited by uh, the petitioner where there is no limitation case, we know that when there's a limitation case on file, uh, there is exclusive federal jurisdiction. And we know that the district courts are therefore bound to uh, exclusively to administer the rights of the limitation uh, claimant and all those, or the limitation petitioner, excuse me, and all those claimants who make claim. 
the only way for any given claimant to exit from the uh, limitation case is if they can, for lack of a better word, trump the uh, limitation petitioner's rights to an exclusive determination in the federal court uh, with some statutory right. And in this case, that would be, the source of that right would be 28 U.S.C. Section 1333, the Saving the Suitors Clause. I'd like to back up a little bit because I don't think I followed you that far down the trail. That is, as I understand it, the whole reason for being of a limitation action is so that the ship owner will be able to limit the extent of his economic loss to the value of the ship. Now, once it is certain that that will, in fact, be the case, that there is no exposure beyond the value of the ship, what function does a limitation proceeding save serve other than to block what would ordinarily be a garden variety Jones Act case from proceeding in whatever form the sailor chooses to sue in? Because the Limitation of Liability Act has more than just to limit liability, it also has the purpose of allowing an exoneration to be pursued by the ship owner. And indeed, in Langness versus Green, uh, the seminal case that started this exception, uh, the, it, it, the court was very clear, this court was very clear, that uh, the limitation court had both the power to decide exoneration and limitation. Now, what provision of the, uh, of the Limitation Act uh, gives you the right to have an exoneration proceeding? Mr. Chief Justice, we believe that the entire act construed by this court well, in the Norwich versus uh, uh, Wright case, uh, uh, provides that that right, specifically Section 183, uh, but also read in conjunction with Section 185 in the entire statute. Uh, and wh- where, where is that in, in the in the appendix? Well, the the uh, I see it's at pages one and two of the petition for certiorari. Yes, Your Honor. Well, the the uh, the statute itself, of course, is in the United States Code, and, and under Section 183 of Title 46, uh, the vessel owner is entitled to pursue the limitation of liability. Uh, and uh, is But pursuing the limitation of liability is one thing. Getting an exoneration determination is another. Yes, sir. Well, Your Honor, it, it, going back to Norwich versus uh, Wright, uh, this court – and on at least a dozen occasions since 1871 has decided that exoneration is a fundamental right uh, under the statute and is part and parcel of the limitation proceeding. Were any of those cases single claimant cases uh, where the fund was adequate to cover the injury? Or were they all what one thinks of as limitation case, um, a, a rather larger disaster? The the early cases, Justice Ginsburg, typically involved a petition to limit after a judgment had already been obtained in a district court. Indeed, uh, the Norwich case, uh, that is the uh, case cited in both briefs, and the original seminal case in limitation liability involved such a proceeding. And the benefactor, the the second case after Norwich, also involved uh, a uh, 
ship owner that came in after a finding of liability in the district court. But when those early uh, decisions came out construing the Limitation of Liability Act, uh, for the first time, it had been passed in 1851, they had to decide what it meant. And there was an extended discussion in Norwich versus Wright about it. Uh, and in that court case, this court stated that the American Limitation of Liability Act represented a departure from English law because the English Chancery Courts, which had earlier heard limitation cases in England, lacked the power to investigate claims in admiralty. And therefore, under English admiralty law, the ship owner was required to admit liability. In the American courts, and under the Limitation Act, as construed by this court in Norwich versus Wright, uh, a, a, a determination not only of limitation was undertaken, but also of exoneration. And from that time forward, but wasn't that uh, only on the assumption that there was jurisdiction under just to, to seek limitation? As part of the proceeding, they could seek exoneration. But was there any case where they, the only issue was exoneration versus liability? Not per se, Your Honor. Not per se. And, and the word exoneration is not in the statute itself, is it? Uh, it is not found in the statute, although it does state, the statute does say that the vessel owner's uh, liability shall not exceed. Yeah. Right. Uh, the value of the saying shall not exist. Mm. Well, yeah. it also uh, does not deny the district court, uh, the same statute that gives it the jurisdiction to decide limitation liability, does not deny to the district court the ability to but, decide. But wouldn't all these cases fit together if we simply held that in a, an appropriate case where the limitation liability proceeding involves multiple claimants and, and an original intent to get more than the gross value of the ship, that in such a case, the, among the things a ship owner can do is seek complete defense of non-liability. Wouldn't they, all the cases fit together if we just held that's, that's where the exoneration is appropriate? Well, certainly that's one option. Yeah. Uh, and I, we would certainly urge that on the court. Uh, and I believe it's part of the Limitation Act that the ship owner should be entitled to seek exoneration in any case in which it seeks a limitation as well. But, um, uh, the, the Norwich, for example, the, the Norwich was decided long before the Jones Act was passed. Yes, Your Honor. Uh, do you think the Jones Act affects Nor the holding in Norwich in any way? We do not. Uh, it's clear uh, that the rights that the seaman has under the Jones Act are subordinate to, in general, to the rights of the ship owner to limit liability. In other words... Well, well, no, why, why do you say that? Because it, for the reason that it's clear that if there had been a... Uh, limitation proceeding uh, with multiple claimants in a case where the claims asserted exceeded the value of the vessel. Yeah, but Langness says this uh, single claimant is different. Does it not? Well, what Lang Langness really rests upon three distinct factors. Uh, Langness says, first, you have to have a limitation of liability case. Langness says, second, you have to have a single claimant. And third you have to have a request for a jury trial. Those, in our view, are the three pillars upon which that case was decided. Do you think the re request for a jury trial was essential to the holding in Langness? Your Honor, I do, and the reason is because it's the request for a jury trial that implicates a saved remedy. The request for a jury trial is what implicates a right under the Saving the Suitors Clause, which, which in that situation uh, exceeds the the, uh, uh, the interest of the vessel owner in staying in federal court. As I read it, you're trying, well, you seem to be trying to make the tail wag the dog. I mean, the, the, these early cases, 
say, well, you know, if you're in federal court, ship owner, trying to limit your liability uh, because we've had a collision and there are 42,000 plaintiffs and, and you, you've got to deal with this and just limited to the vessel, well, as long as you're there, we'll try out whether you're liable at all. We'll try out exoneration. But the only reason we're doing that, they didn't do it in England. But the court says, we say, from time immemorial, it was done in every other country. Right? So, yes. So we'll do it. But if you're not here, what's the point of doing it? And you're not here if there's a single plaintiff or if uh, there's an adequate fund. Well, that's I mean, uh, the reasoning of it would seem to me to be if you're not here and you can't get here because there's an adequate fund, for example, there's no reason for us to snatch the issue of liability away from the state court. Justice Breyer, I think it's key to look at Langness versus Green and see in that case that this court stated emphatically that the procedure under the Limitation of Liability Act was to first look at exoneration, and then but if liability was found, to look at limitation. Of course that's true, provided that you are properly in the federal court limiting your liability. And, but and my point is, suppose you're not as is true here, for the reason that you have an adequate fund, you have no basis to get into the federal court. If there's an adequate fund, your only basis could be that we want to exonerate. But exoneration is there in case you're in anyway. Well, let me state that initially, the initial claim filed in this case did exceed the limitation fund. Mm -hmm. And so that at the time the vessel owner instituted the proceeding, uh, that was certainly in play, and indeed when the initial claim was filed. How did you know that? Because the uh, Stellar suit was filed second. You had your limitation. If I remember the chronology right, uh, you sought limitation, and then a week later, the Jones Act case was started. What the short answer is that we know in this jurisdiction uh, where uh, the state court suit could have been brought, that tripping over a wire could lead to a judgment ex in excess of the value of the vessel. And so, therefore, the <laughs> but this uh, vessel owner had a good faith reason for pursuing limitation. This plaintiff hadn't made any such claim then. You, you're basing it on other claims that were made against this show, ship owner? No, I, I believe the, the vessel owner, uh, based on its experience and based on its knowledge of the situation, felt that an accident had occurred during this voyage, which might... Uh, uh, make uh, its vindication under the Limitation of Liability Act uh, uh, a realistic legal possibility, and so a petition was filed. There's no rule that prevents a vessel owner from coming in before the claims are filed, just as there's no rule that prevents a vessel owner from coming in while claims are being filed or after they're filed. So uh, the timing of the filing of the Limitation of Liability proceeding is really... I brought it up and answered to you, your assertion we knew that he originally had a claim in excess of the value of the vessel. You didn't know that specifically with respect to this plaintiff. Well, knowing, I think, and having a good faith belief that the proceeding might be in the vessel owner's interest are two different things. I don't think there was any way to predict the future at the time the petition was filed, but certainly... But you didn't have to make any prediction a week later. That's true, because we, we shortly thereafter had a claim in excess of the... Value of the vessel. And the, the, the prayer for relief was for in excess of $450,000? Yeah, by stipulation, I, I think in the, uh, uh, in the joint appendix at 69, uh, the 
record reflects that the initial claim was in excess of the value of the vessel. And that's well, by the stipulation. The question really is whether that did not satisfy the purposes of the limitation of liability proceeding. Well, Justice Stevens, our position is that once the jurisdiction of the limitation court is validly invoked, which it was in this case, that jurisdiction attaches. And, and under the Constitution and laws, the district court is obligated to decide all those issues. And the only way to escape uh, for the claimant, in this case, to escape that uh, uh, jurisdiction, is to point to a definite statutory right that allows him to defeat federal jurisdiction. Now, uh, but in this case... But the statutory right that he's talking about, it two ways to define it. One is the savings of suitor clause itself is a, is a statutory right. He's entitled to invoke that. And it doesn't really say only if he's seeking a jury trial. That's true. And, uh, but we know a number of things about the saving the suitors clause. We know that the rights under it are not absolute. And we know that because, number one, a, a, uh, a Jones Act claimant can have his case, uh, excuse me, a limitation claimant, not a Jones Act claimant, can have his case removed to federal court. We know that uh, the the saving the suitors clause doesn't protect the right of a bank, say, to sue uh, a, uh, a lender or a, a debtor on a first preferred chip mortgage. We know those kind of cases are committed to the federal court and but, can't be brought in the state court. Well, what about the practical advantage of a plaintiff who thinks he's going to get a better verdict in Madison County, Illinois, than he will in the federal district court for the Eastern District of Missouri? Well, that is his right to sue where he thinks he can obtain the best a verdict unless there's some kind of illegal form shopping going on. But that that really uh, is what this case is all about. I, the vessel owner is entitled to pursue limitation where it believes the purposes of the act will be furthered. In other words, where it sees uh, that it has an opportunity to invoke exclusive federal jurisdiction to adjudicate the rights uh, from some accident occurring, uh, occurring during some voyage. And if I may uh, address a point from... Do I understand you, then that the vessel owner in every case where the sailor chooses to sue in state court and not ask for a jury trial, the vessel owner can always pick the form instead by filing a limitation proceeding? Uh, unless he pursues a right, the claimant pursues a right that is preserved under the Saving the Suitors Clause, I would agree with that. Well, what you told me that the only thing that's preserved is jury trial, not the Jones Act claim, which is what I would have thought. That I, I would have thought, apart from um, entertaining your, your position, that it's not the Jones Act claim and the choice of forum that Congress has provided, but it's only the device of jury trial. Well, it's really, what it is, it, it, uh, let me refine my comment. What I'm really saying is that if the remedy is already available in the federal court, and what the Eighth Circuit decided was that if the remedy is already available in the federal court, in the limitation proceeding, there is no saved remedy to pursue elsewhere. And so the, I think the issue for this court is not so much jury versus non-jury uh, uh, in, the, in the abstract sense. The question is whether or not the specific remedy requested is available in the federal court. Well, why is the remedy the courthouse that's closest to my home that's most convenient for me? Why isn't that the remedy that is saved? 
affected the ability to choose irremovably the, well, the venue? The, the answer to that is that the rights under the Saving the Suitors Clause are not absolute, and they never have been by this held so by this court or by any other federal court. They're always going to be subject. But, but your position was that that wasn't saved at all because you could get a non-jury trial in, in the admiralty forum. Well, I don't think the decision whether or not the non-jury trial is saved or not is necessary to this court's decision, nor was it addressed specifically. In fact, it was reserved specifically by the Eighth Circuit. You don't need to get that far. And the reason is because uh, under the rubric adopted by the Eighth Circuit, if the remedy sought is available already in the limitation court, this, the claimant's not allowed to go back. And it was already available, i.e. a non-jury trial. So the court below never needed to address whether a non-jury trial was specifically a saved remedy or not, nor does this court need to decide that. So practically what the position you're urging on us comes down to is that the Jones Act plaintiff can get his choice of forum as long as he insists on having a trial by jury. If he doesn't insist on having a trial by jury, he doesn't preserve his right to choose the forum. That's correct. That's, that's your position. That's correct. Why would that be? I mean, let, let's suppose that a, a Jones Act plaintiff does, could go in, could, he could get into federal admiralty court. He could get in. Or he could do what he'd prefer to do, which is to file in the state. Now, why shouldn't he be able to file in the state unless there's some federal reason that prefers the federal tribunal? Well, that's the federal reason that prefers the federal No, no, I mean, you're making both arguments. One argument is that there is a federal reason, and the federal reason is the exoneration. And that's countered with the argument that there is no federal reason where there isn't an independent reason for being in the, uh, the limitation act. All right, so I'm taking the other part. Let's assume there is no federal reason. If there is no federal reason, so he, has a, he has the right to come in the door, but there's no federal preference. Why shouldn't he be able to go to the state court? Well, Justice Breyer, I, number one, my first response is I don't believe that's our case. Uh, we do have a federal reason for being okay. here. And the second response— But if, if you didn't, if there were no reason favoring the federal court, then would you say give him his choice? Well, I suppose that would be true, except that Congress has spoken to the situation when they've committed limitation liability acts to the exclusive okay. jurisdiction— Okay, but if, if, if you're prepared to go that far, then the case turns on whether— there is a federal reason, and the federal reason, you say, is exoneration. So I understand that. And, and then I'm back to the question I had before, which I'm not sure I had a satisfactory answer to totally, that really what this exoneration is is the tail. And it follows the dog into the federal court. And the only reason it's ever there was historically. In England, they did this, what the courts thought were absurd, to force the, the, the ship owner to give up his... his uh, uh, a right to exoneration in order to get in the federal court. And our court years ago said, that's silly. No other country does that, and we're not going to do it. Well, I would prefer to think of uh, exoneration not as the tail, perhaps the other set of legs of the same dog. I think that the <coughs> right to exonerate is half of what you have under the statute. The right to limit uh, is the other half of what you have under the statute. And one can't be divorced from the other. You've got the statute, but it, it doesn't appear in the statute. And, and what is your response to the fact that if, if the only reference to it is, is in the federal rules, uh, that's ultra virus? 
Well, my response, Justice Scalia, is, is uh, 130 years of decisions from this court and others, at least a half dozen cases from this court, holding that in a proceeding under the Limitation of Liability Act itself now, uh, the, the court determines exoneration as well as limitation. It would be almost impossible for this court to write exoneration out unless it were prepared to overrule all those cases. Well, no. Are, are you saying that in the single claimant, uh, stipulated claim less than the value of the vessel, we would have to overrule cases in order to rule against you here? No. Well, I thought that's what you just did say. No. What I'm saying is what Langness versus Green tells us, and what Lake Tank, which is the single claimant exception case, and what Lake Tankers versus Hen tells us, which is the multiple claimant case, or excuse me, the adequate fund case, what those cases tell us is that when the claimant seeks a jury trial, that has been deprived of him in the limitation court, that under those circumstances, there is enough of a, uh, there's enough rights there for that claimant to trump the ship owner's right to be in federal court, and they will then allow him to go back to state court, assuming on the one hand there's a single claimant, or on the other hand there's an adequate fund. But you can't look back at Lake Tankers versus Hen or at uh, Langness versus Green and write out of the court's decisions the references to a jury trial being requested by the plaintiff. That is what, in my view, was the really the moving force in those decisions that allowed those plaintiffs to go back. Of course, can't you just read that as a, this is a particularly strong reason for vindicating the plaintiff's right to choose his own forum, that in one forum he gets a jury and the other he doesn't? That makes it a, a very appealing case. I don't think you can you can necessarily deduce from that the conclusion that he wouldn't also have a right to pick the forum of his own choice uh, without that feature. Justice Stevens, I don't think we'd be here if the if the courts had routinely held that you've got a right to a forum. Uh, they haven't. What the courts have held, this court and and the federal courts, and what the commentators have talked about for uh, for for decades, is the right to a remedy. And uh, the right to a remedy uh, does not necessarily entitle him to go to a state court. Well, he gets the same remedy, remedy, whether it's a jury trial or a, or a bench trial. He's seeking damages. That's the remedy. Well, the remedy, uh, uh, as the court stated in Chalendis versus Luckenbach, uh, the remedy is the means employed to seek the redress. And in our view, and I think the cases bear this out, a jury trial is a specific form of remedy. A non-jury trial is another form of remedy. It's the means employed. And I think uh, that there's really no question uh, under the case law that, th that a jury trial is in a class separate from a non-jury trial as far as the saving to suitors clause goes. They're different remedies. Uh, now, they both seek judgments, but, but uh, 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 in a different way. If I may uh, briefly address uh, the Rule uh, F argument, uh, the position urged by petitioner that Rule F should be declared invalid is, in our view, uh, extreme and not warranted uh, by the case law. This court in the Henderson case did not announce a general test for the determination of when uh, a, a Rules Enabling Act rule would be ultra-virus. Uh, it instead decided uh, that Rule 4 trumped the Suits and Admiralty Act provision for requiring forthwith uh, service of process on the basis that the rule was purely procedural. Uh, but uh, 
if I may, under Rule F, three of the four items that petitioner urges are contained in, in Rule F and that mandate that it's a substantive rule are found in the limitation statute itself, namely who may sue, uh, when they may sue, and the object of the suit. And so, therefore, uh, even under the test that petitioner cites, uh, Rule F clearly uh, does not uh, meet the standard of a, of a substantive rule that would be struck down under the Rules Enabling Act. Indeed, uh, the Limitation Act uh, addresses uh, those, those items. And I turn again back to the original decisions by this court uh, in the benefactor, in the Norwich versus Wright case, in which this court had occasion to construe the act. And if you follow the language closely of those decisions, the court was not construing rules that had promulgated. The court was construing the act itself. And the, the original admiralty rules that were promulgated uh, by this court in the Norwich case, the original 50-some uh, admiralty rules uh, from 1871, were rules, but they were in themselves interpretations of the act uh, as, uh, as seen by this court. And they included the right to exoneration. Now, if the limitation petitioner can come into court and if he can pursue a limit, exoneration as well as limitation, then by definition, uh, uh, the court has exclusive jurisdiction over both of those subject matters, and the limitation uh, claimant, in this case uh, the Jones Act seaman, can return uh, to state court only uh, if he demonstrates that the remedy he wants is not available in the federal court. Um, if there are no further questions. Thank you, Mr. O'Brien. Thank you. Mr. Drips, you have uh, six minutes remaining. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Mr. O'Brien indicated that three of the four items that are in Rule F are in the statute. What he neglected to mention is, is uh, what Justice Scalia asked earlier. The one that's not in the statute is the one that's critical to his analysis, which is the exoneration provision. And that's not in the statute. Um, Mr. O'Brien relies heavily on the benefactor, and I would simply refer the court uh, to the quote from uh, the benefactor, it's at 103 U.S. 241. It's at page 16 of the reply brief. And the court said that hence this court in preparing the rules of procedure for a limitation of liability deemed it proper to allow a party seeking such limitation to contest any liability whatever. That is not a statement of statutory construction. That is a statement of legislative intent. We're adopting these rules so that the party can contest the, the liability. Now, that is exactly what is forbidden by the Rules Enabling Act, yet that is what this court said it was doing in 1880. Justice Stevens and Justice Breyer both asked um, about, uh, in essence, whether there would be a right to a pure exoneration claim in federal court. And I do want to point out that both the Fifth Circuit in the Fecht versus Mikowski case and the Seventh Circuit in the Joyce versus Joyce case have said no, that unless there is a viable claim for limitation, you cannot come in and ask for exoneration. And I think that is the, the rule that this court uh, should, should adopt. Um, the Langness decision, as Justice Stevens noted, as Justice Stevens noted, does not 
require a jury trial, but it simply says that a jury trial is one aspect that makes the state court forum desirable. And that's part of the Jones Act remedy to allow the injured employee that option of choosing either state or federal court and whether or not uh, to have a jury trial in either forum. To get to the respondent's not otherwise available test, this court is going to have to say that the saving clause does not protect statutory remedies, particularly the statutory remedy afforded by the Jones Act, which allows the employee to choose the form uh, that the case will be tried in. That, however, is exactly what the saving clause was designed to do, and that is why this court should reverse the Eighth Circuit's decision and reinstate the decision of the district court dissolving the injunction. Thank you, Mr. Dribbs. The case is submitted. The Honorable Court is now adjourned until Friday, the 1st of December at 10 o'clock.